Welcome to episode four of the African Photography Safaris podcast with me, Alan Hewitt, and also Khalil Zaib. Episodes one, two, and three are available via our www.africanphotographysafaris.com website and also on providers such as Amazon Music, Spotify, Audible, Apple Podcasts, and Google. On our podcast, we chat about what it's like to be on a photography safari, and we also run through useful things to know, interesting topics, and a few of our favourite moments. Also on the website are any photos or videos that relate to what we're talking about on the podcast and any other links like the books that we review. And did I mention that I'm off to South Africa and Botswana next week? Not yet, but I'm envious. I haven't been to South Africa before, but I've been to Botswana and absolutely loved it. More on that in a little bit. Something we mentioned in episode three was about the different tech available to us now in mirrorless cameras. So we'll look at that and talk about the differences between SLRs and mirrorless and how we can embrace that tech. We're also going to continue with Natalie's questions to the podcast. Natalie was kind enough to send us a whole bunch of questions before episode three, so we're going to pick another couple today. We'll cover a couple of African animals and talk a bit about our wonderful Maasai guides in Kenya. Continuing our series of book reviews, I'm going to look at the Helm Field Guide to Birds of East Africa, and we have our memorable photographic moment too. What's that going to be, Alan? Vultures in the Mara Triangle, which were last year. Um, I'm also going to discuss monopods and tripods on safari. But before any of this, I'm going to talk about a photography news item, um, which I saw a couple of weeks ago, which was about some batteries. And this kind of links back to our feature in episode three about equipment and packing. We're both familiar with a company called Small Rig, who make camera cages and accessories. We both use Small Rig gear when we're doing video work. You know, the cages provide these wonderful mounting points for attaching things like field monitors, sound equipment, cable management, handles, shoulder support, lots of bits and pieces which are highly customizable and very, very useful. They've launched a range of camera batteries which don't need chargers. Yes, of course, you need to charge them, but you plug a USB cable straight into the battery, no external charger. Very useful when you're out in the field, so you can use a power bank. And also, just like we discussed in episode 3, if you can dispense with chargers, plugs, cables, you can save very, very precious weight and space in your camera bag. Now, I have to say, I'm quite stuck in my ways. I don't really like third-party batteries. I prefer to use those made by the manufacturer of my camera. But I do know a lot of people use good third-party brands without issues, and that's great. But I've also experienced people having issues with reduced longevity of charge, quick charge depletion, and even physical swelling when in the camera, which is a major issue if it occurs. That said, I do think these things could be very, very useful. So I'm going to keep my eye on these from Small Rig and see how they perform. I should add that at this stage, they're only available to replace a limited type of camera batteries uh, for Fujifilm, Canon and Sony. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting idea being able to plug directly into the battery with a USB-C cable, which is rapidly becoming the, the standard now. Uh, it just takes out that uh, multiple charger scenario. I've occasionally used third-party batteries before, but for the same reason you've, as Alan's just mentioned there, I don't really like them or haven't liked them in the past. Certainly for the last decade or more, I've not used them on my stills cameras. Um, filming's a bit different um, because of the increased demand on batteries, and it often means um, using very large external batteries, the kind you definitely don't want to drop on your foot. Uh, anyway, um, Small Rig have a good name in the industry, and I've got loads of their kit, as has Alan, uh, so it's worth keeping an eye on. I'll have no idea whether they can produce reliable, good batteries. We'll see. 
Let's turn our attention to the new tech in mirrorless cameras. Well, I say new, mirrorless itself isn't very new, but I guess in the history of camera technology, it's still pretty new. Several years ago, mirrorless cameras upended the camera market and started chipping away at the dominance of DSLRs, which in turn did the same to film cameras earlier on. What we're gonna discuss here are some of the tech advances mirrorless cameras have recently brought to us and why you might wanna consider one. Mirrorless cameras are very well established now, but I appreciate that not everyone will have one or fully understand what they are, or even know whether they should look into changing from a DSLR. So let's start with fundamentals. What is a mirrorless camera? Well, to do that by way of comparison, I'll explain what came before mirrorless first. So if you've used a, an SLR camera, whether digital or film, the D just stands for digital, you'll probably know that when you look through the viewfinder, you're actually looking through the camera's lens. The light's passed back from the lens and bounced off a mirror up to the pentaprism, which corrects the image in the viewfinder that you see. This is a clean optical representation of what the lens is seeing without any faffment in between. Faffment, that's a good word. I do like faffment, no faffment here. You may know if you've taken the lens off your DSLR that what you're actually looking at inside the camera body is the mirror and not the sensor. The mirror is directly in front of the sensor. So in order for you to be able to see an image in an SLR's viewfinder, the mirror blocks the path of light to the sensor and redirects it up to the prism. Great for a view, but no good for taking a photo. So in order for an SLR to take a photo, it has to physically move that mirror out of the way of the sensor or the film. While the mirror's out of the way, the image is exposed and that creates a momentary blackout in the viewfinder because the mirror isn't sending it any light and you hear that characteristic slap as the mirror is mechanically moved out of the way and replaced again. You might think it's the shutter that makes that noise and it does make a noise, but most of the sound you hear is actually the mirror. Enter mirrorless. I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that a mirrorless camera doesn't actually have a mirror, but why design a camera like this? Well, let's start with a lack of mirror. It doesn't have one or a pentaprism, which means that the camera bodies can be smaller, lighter, and therefore more portable. Compared with a DSLR, this could be a big factor if you don't want to wield a hefty rig around with you. And it also has the advantage of being physically smaller and weighing less for traveling. I imagine, although I don't know this for a fact, but mirrorless cameras have fewer moving parts in them, so I, you know, I'd hope that they'd have less mechanical failures at least. Ah, oh, and they're also quieter, no mirror slap. It's funny you should say that actually, because it reminds me of being in a hide in rural Spain, uh, photographing some lesser kestrels. And I was there with my mirrorless Fujifilm X-H1, which is a very, very quiet mechanical shutter, obviously doesn't have a mirror. And there was a chap next to me who had a, a big Canon 1D X Mark something or other. And when he took some shots, the uh, cameras and the lenses were actually attached to the structure of the hide via tripod mounts. And it was almost like the whole hide was reverberating with this noise of the mirror slapping over. And it actually scared a lot of the birds off some of the times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, my Nikon DSLR used to sound like a machine gun. They, they can actually be totally silent mirrorless cameras if they have an electronic shutter, which is an absolute godsend for shy wildlife. Most mirrorless cameras have a mechanical shutter, but many actually have a mechanical and electronic, and some of the newer ones only have electronic. Because a mirrorless camera doesn't have a mirror, the image you see in the viewfinder is an electronic representation of what the sensor is showing you. Now this has advantages and disadvantages. So in the early days, the electronic viewfinders yeah, they were pants. 
speaking truthfully, the refresh rates and the clarity, they, they weren't great and they lagged behind the real scene, which made them pretty rubbish for any kind of action. These days, though, wow, that's changed. The recent mirrorless cameras I've used don't have any visible lag and have very high resolutions and the refresh rates are extremely high. I'd still say, um, yeah, an optical viewfinder is nicer on the eye than an electronic viewfinder or EVF, but the difference is much smaller and EVFs have lots of advantages. So just rewind a little bit. Um, with an SLR, the optical viewfinder gives you a nice view of what the lens is seeing, but it doesn't alter it much beyond that. What you see in the viewfinder is not necessarily the photo you'll take. It doesn't account for shutter speed or aperture or depth of field. You'll need to press a button to stop down the lens to simulate that. I always found that a bit iffy because it used to darken the image so much and I really couldn't tell what was going on, to be honest. With EVFs, you're seeing what the sensor has actually recorded and processed. So you're seeing almost exactly what your image will look like. This means you'll see the effects like depth of field, no more stopping down. You'll also see effects like ISO, white balance, and any other things you've set, such as creative film simulations. This is a massive advantage. Shutter speed's slightly different kettle of fish here, as you might not see long shutter speeds uh, reflected in the EVF, depending on how the camera operates. But on the whole, it's a huge advantage to be able to preview how your shot will look. Not only that, but you can actually see things like a histogram or browse the menu and preview past images, all with the EVF. Obviously, you can look at this on the rear screen if you want, but often that's in full sunlight. So this is where the EVF comes in, because you can just look through the EVF and it's nice and dark. You don't have the problems of the sun reflecting off it. So you just look through the EVF at your images instead. I think in the early years, there were plenty of problems which aren't an issue now. Also, when mirrorless cameras first came out and you turned up as a professional with one instead of an SLR at a client's shoot, there was always the worry that they might think you weren't serious with this tiny little camera body. That's not the case anymore, and DSLRs seem massive and clunky to me now. There are, of course, drawbacks, and all this visual imagery has to be continuously processed and displayed by the camera, which drains the battery faster. But the current crop of mirrorless cameras has much improved batteries. Even Fujifilm have finally caught up, so battery drain isn't so much of a consideration now. I really like using an EVF. Um, we often have a huge choice of viewfinder customizations and sizes of the information that's being displayed to us. Everything from exposure settings through to focus settings, battery info, a live histogram, flashing over exposure warnings, focus picking. And of course, this what you see is what you get approach for exposure, white balance and ISO. You know, I really like that I can have a lot of control over what info I want presented to me via the AVF. At first, I think there's a lot of temptation to go over the top, but I think it soon becomes information overload. And now, really, I just want key settings and highlight warnings. And I think you're right, the more information we have, the more all of these little tiny pixels are going to add to battery depletion. So, you know, keep it simple for me. If I'm doing stills work, I tend to fold the larger rear screen to face inwards now, and I don't bother with it at all. The dark, contrasty AVF provides a great way to review images rather than the rear screen in difficult light. And I also use it for setup in, in the camera menus too. Yeah, that can be a real, real help. Mirrorless also brings other advantages. 
Electronic shutters are often very, very high frame rates. So you can take like 10, 20, sometimes 30 shots a second, all with full autofocus. And even more recently, often without any blackout between the frames. How about the Canon R3's 195 frames a second? Actually, these crazy frame rates aren't so out of the blue if you consider the high-end video cameras have been using this kind of tech for a long time. 60 and 120 frames a second are more or less normal now. And if you want the creme de la creme of high-speed cameras, look no further than Phantom's 1 million frames a second. Practically speaking, yeah, you wouldn't want to shoot hundreds of raw images in a row unless you absolutely had to. Your hard drive would weep. And if you haven't already gone mad processing all those identical images you've just taken, well, you know. But if, if you want to nail some action, so to speak, fast frame rates are your friend. A great example is waiting for a bird to take off so you can catch it in just the right posture in the air. Yeah, rapid frame rates are absolutely fantastic, but I agree they have to be used with caution. I often use 30, maybe even 40 frames per second, but it's never about 200 shots in five seconds. You know, the, For me, the advantage here is short, sharp bursts, 15 to 20 frames in a fraction of a second. That's where the action happens. It's the action that our own eyes and our brains are too slow to register that we can now capture on uh, camera. Yeah. Speaking of which, there's another feature of some mirrorless cameras that will help getting this bird shot pre-shot. Pre-shot is a wonderful thing that allows you to take shots before you've even pressed the shutter button. How can it do this? Well, the camera continuously records a buffer of several shots, and when you take a shot, it also gives you all the ones before the one you've just shot. Perfect for tricky reaction times like our bird jumping off a stick. This, as far as I know, has been ported from cinema cameras into the stills world. So for years now, I've loved my Sony video cameras for what they call picture cache recording. It does exactly the same as I've just described, but for video, you get a few extra seconds on the beginning of your clip. In the same way as for stills, this takes a lot of trial and error out of shooting, and it uses massively less media space because you only hit record or press the shutter button when something actually happens rather than trying to constantly preempt. This is where I get totally stumped though, because Sony have had the video equivalent of pre-shot in their cinema cameras for at least 10 years that I know of, yet none of their stills cameras have it. It's totally baffling and very frustrating to me as a Sony stills as well as video user. It's so useful for my video work. I just can't understand why Sony haven't added it to their stills cameras. Anyway, rant over. Other than to mention that there's actually a change.org petition asking Sony to add this feature to their stills cameras. Alan, I know you love Fujifilm's implementation of pre-shot, and Don, one of our lovely repeat safari guests, got fantastic results with his Olympus last year. Yeah, that's right. I've embraced pre-shot with my Fujifilm X-H2S, especially when photographing birds, and yes, I know Don also uses it on his Olympus. I think they call it something like Pro-Shot on the Olympus cameras. It's absolutely great tech uh, to use, but it is, of course, limited to electronic shutter, and there is always a risk of the rolling shutter issues, so to get away with it for very fast action, you need a rather powerful camera with a with a pretty good fast processor. You know, for example, the Fujifilm X-H2S, where I've seen no rolling shutter issues. I personally haven't used it on other cameras, so I don't know how that uh, at what point the rolling shutter becomes an issue. Interestingly, some of the new Nikon mirrorless, as we mentioned, uh, have completely ditched the mechanical shutter altogether. Uh, personally, I do believe digital SLRs are now obsolete technology, uh, controversial, yeah, 
their value in the second-hand market is dropping considerably, which means there are bargains to be had. But I'd also exercise a lot of caution, especially the lenses at the more expensive end of the scale. I know some of the manufacturers are no longer supporting repairs for gear that isn't particularly old, so I don't think I would be investing in something that is you know, effectively obsolete. At face value, it sounds like mirrorless is better than a day out on the beach with beer and sandwiches, but it's not that clear-cut. Nothing ever is. Mirrorless cameras do have their drawbacks too. Yeah, price for one. I mean, they're expensive, and at the cheaper end of the market, there are no bargains to be had compared to entry-level DSLRs. Worth noting is that because the distance between the sensor and the lens mount has changed in most mirrorless systems, the equivalent DSLR lenses aren't compatible without an adapter. Back to price again, lenses designed for mirrorless are still fairly new, so there aren't many bargains around either compared to DSLR lenses. For completeness, it's worth saying that in general, people still do prefer an optical over an electronic viewfinder. When I first transitioned from a Nikon DSLR to a Sony mirrorless, I didn't like the EVF. I had a Sony A6500 and the EVF refresh rate and general quality was, well, it wasn't great. However, having moved up the food chain in the Sony range, I now have an A7S III and A7R4, and both of these have great viewfinders. I would say that you can't really beat the clarity of looking through the optical viewfinder of an SLR. But, you know, I've kind of learned to more or less forget about that now. Really, I've never actually missed the optical viewfinder. But when I first embraced mirrorless, the, the tech was way past its infancy. And the electronic viewfinder of my uh, Fujifilm X-H1 had no lag. It was very high res. The EVFs, you know, they have so many advantages and it just doesn't even cross my mind anymore. Yeah. Lastly, I'm afraid we're not going to recommend any specific mirrorless cameras uh, because really, as soon as we do that, they'll be out of date within seconds. But suffice it to say that Alan and I are complete converts to mirrorless and have been for years and we've never looked back. Let's move on to our memorable photography moment with vultures. Do you remember our day in the Mara Triangle in September last year? Yeah, is that when you saw the beautiful leopard in the tree, the one you got to just before our vehicle arrived? Correct. I'm not going to talk about that. But, yeah, that was a great start to the day, and that's also when we met Derek, uh, Boston's brother, at the gate just beforehand, which was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, Derek actually tipped us off about that, and he'd seen it the day before and went to check it out again. And when he saw and he gave Boston a call, uh, we were only a couple of minutes away. Yeah, that's right. It was very, very close to the Olululu Gate in the shadow of the escarpment. Easy for you to say. <laughs> we, we also had that really huge herd of elephants around the same time. Everybody was getting out of the vehicles to go through the, the gate and present the passports and all that kind of thing. And these elephants were so close as we were sorting out our entry to the triangle. It was absolutely amazing. Anyway, I'm not going to talk about either of those, even though we just have. Later in the day, we uh, we were returning back towards the gate after we'd had our lunch right on the Tanzanian border. And just as we were following the track through the Alpenyata swamp area, we came across the remains of a recent successful hunt. Whatever had hunted the carcass, it looked like it had just left, and it was the vulture's turn. 
we couldn't actually see the carcass but we sat for about 30 maybe 40 minutes as one after the other like a super busy airport so many vultures descended from above and came gliding right past us to land and scavenge there were white back vultures there were lapid vultures rubles vultures and the odd marabou stalk of course too you know, it's a great spectacle when vultures land, they spread their huge wings, they drop their heads down low. I don't know for sure what why they do that, but it looks very purposeful. Perhaps it's part of getting their wing position right for slowing down and getting maximum lift for landing. It was also a great session on flight photography, getting the autofocus set up correctly and panning with vulture after vulture as they arrived on the scene. I will put some photographs up on the website, of course, but the reason I've chosen this as a photographic moment is because this is an example of one of the many things I love about photography in Africa. Sometimes we go out with a definite plan or we head to something with a specific species in mind when we know something is happening. Perhaps we heard on the, on the grapevine that there's a lion around or some elephants, cheetah, leopard or whatever. But sometimes we just a fumbile. Now that's a term that I learned in South Africa which just means we go and see what we can find. And it's often very random what actually happens. Sometimes you just don't know what is around the next bend in the track. It's not always hugely dramatic, but it doesn't have to be. You know, we've stumbled across some really interesting stuff in the past and it provides some great photography too, as well as these vultures, which we had a fantastic time photographing in flight. Another good example was the time we spotted the marabou stalk in a drying up watering hole. It was picking out what looked like catfish and then just dumping them on the dry grass to stop them from escaping and what little water was left. After it had gathered quite a collection, it then set about trying to swallow each one whole. But these fish were huge and it constantly struggled as they were still alive and writhing around in the stalk's bill. It wasn't big five lions or elephants or leopards. With a scavenging bird and some fish but it was an absolutely fascinating moment of natural history and we just came across it totally randomly absolute fumbile yeah that was in uh, that was in the mara triangle it serendipity was. just gotta love it fumbile that's uh, i like that so that's a good word sounds like you're fumbling around until you stumble on something yeah I, I don't actually know what it really really means or what language it is i think it's some sort of south african um one, one of the many languages spoken in the south africa area that i visit but it's a well-known term fumbile sounds onomatopoeic it does Right, now onto our regular feature, the book review. So for this episode, I've chosen another one of those wonderful field guides that are reassuringly heavy and full of great detail. Today's book's one of the Helm Field Guides, and it's The Birds of East Africa by Terry Stevenson and John Fanshaw. This book covers birds you'll find in Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda and Burundi, so it's directly relevant to our Kenya safaris. I think it's worth pointing out that Africa in general has a spectacular array of different birds and speaking about Kenya alone, there are over 1,100 species to see. People often assume that we go to the Maasai Mara just to see the mammals and you know things like lions and elephants. They do steal the limelight, but the bird life is astonishing and varied. From the brightly coloured lilac-breasted rollers, yellow long claws and bee-eaters, to the eagles, vultures and buzzards, there are birds everywhere of all sizes colors and behaviors oh, and the bustards gotta love a bustard in fact kenya has the heaviest flying bird the cory bustard 
I did want to be able to say Kenya's full of little bustards, but that one species, no, they don't have that. Just a massive bustard. Massive bustard. Flying bustard. (laughs) (laughs) It's obviously that point in the podcast, isn't it? Uh, funnily enough, after a few days on safari, you kind of end up looking for the so the little birds that aren't so brightly coloured, like larks and pipits. Well, I do anyway. I think the sheer numbers and variety bring out the latent spotter in me. Anyway, back to the book. Rufus-naped lark. Yes, yes. That's... We often see rufus-naped lark. We do, with a little over. crest. Yeah, and a, and a something or a sister caller. I can't remember what kind of sister <laughs> caller. Yeah, but it's always there. Yep, definitely. Yeah, the, the, the variety is just amazing. Anyway, back to the book. In the guide, the illustrations are very clear and they show subspecies variations as well as the different sexes. Often a separate drawing for flight ID too, which is really useful if you're trying to work out whether a bird is a battler eagle or a martial eagle in the air, for example. Species are grouped together into similar looking birds or birds of the same habitat to make comparison easier. So the text is concise enough to deliver lots of information in a short space, but wordy enough to give you something to get your teeth into. Distribution maps are provided alongside species accounts, and this is often a great way to eliminate contenders of the bird you're looking for, if it shouldn't actually be there. Obviously, that's not always a hard and fast rule, because species can appear outside of the normal range, but it's a good starting point. Maybe I'll be able to shout, you little bustard, if one drifts in from Southern Europe. As is often the case these days, the book's available as an app on Apple's App Store and Google Play, and this is especially useful for travelling because it doesn't weigh anything, and it's searchable either alphabetically or by taxonomic group. The app also has the ability for you to generate a tick list of the birds that you've seen as well. One of the best features of the app is that it's got lots of species accounts that have the audio of the birds, which makes ID easier than reading the descriptions of the sounds. So now you can match the sound that you'll hear in Kenya all over the place, telling you to work harder, drink lager. That'll be the ring-necked dove. I find this amusing as well. The authors in the preface say that the physical book is reasonably small and lightweight. Just uh, let that sink in. Personally, I'd say that 1.1 kilos, and you could use that as a blunt weapon, and it'd be better replaced in a suitcase by an extra lens. I still like to have the original paper book to browse through at my leisure at home, and we'll put a link on the podcast section of the website to both the book and the app. I also have this book. It's a great book, for sure, and it it really does seem to be the go-to birding ID field guide for Eastern Africa. I think it was probably one of the first African wildlife field guides I bought when we were in one of the bookshops in Nairobi's Jomo Kenyatta Airport quite a few years ago now. Yeah, I think we both bought a copy that same day. We did. Now then, that's going back on its shelf, and as we move on to monopods and tripods, so, one leg, three legs, or legless, Alan? Yeah, one leg. You sure? Yeah. Hang on, how many beers have we had? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, monopods, tripods and clamps. This is something that regularly comes up in conversation during the build-up to a photography safari, and as I am about to leave for South Africa and Botswana, it has come up again. Yeah, just bloody rub it in again. South Africa, Botswana, whatever. I know, I know. It's What, what, what can I say? <laughs> 
Uh, I'm a big advocate of using monopods on a safari. They can compress to a small size when not in use and for packing, of course. And in use, they have a very, very small footprint. Unless you have a vehicle to yourself, a tripod is very, very impractical to use in a vehicle. And I don't really like to be fixed to tripod heads that we sometimes see attached to vehicles either. With a monopod, we can have it between our knees, unextended. You know, I've often rested it in that tiny gap between the seat and the door. They're really, really versatile. And when we're working with animals like lions, and this is a great example, and you have your lens focused on the head waiting for a yawn or a bit of eye contact or something, you know, it isn't long before the heavy lens can start to cause a bit of ache in your arms and you get a bit of muscle shake as well. Um, you can pretty much guarantee that when you lower your camera and lens to have a rest, that is when whatever you're trying to photograph is actually going to happen. So I've recently embraced some new monopods from Three Legged Thing. Um, it's actually their Allen 2.0 model. Hang on a minute. Are you telling me Three Legged Thing named that after you? Well, I would like to think they did, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure they're actually named after the legend that is Mr. Alan Turing OBE, or is MBE, I can't remember. Um, I chose these when my older monopod twist locks began to fail, and I was really poor. I hadn't had this monopod for very long. Um, so I went away from the old type that I used to use, and I decided to use the three-legged thing Alan 2, because unextended, it's just 44 centimetres. Yeah, you're definitely taller than that. Must have been Alan Turing. <laughs> it's, it's great for packing and having it beside you in a safari vehicle. But one of the key things, it goes from being 44 centimetres compact to 150 centimetres fully extended. But it has an absolutely whopping 60 kilo payload. Um, it only weighs it's around 600 grams itself. It also has the option of something they call a docks foot stabiliser, which can be used to provide extra stability at the base and can also be detached completely and used as a very small desktop tripod with a ball head on the top. Now, I have to say, I'm not sponsored by a three-legged thing. You know, I just like to appraise good gear that works, gear that is reliable, gear that I believe helps with ticking boxes with size, weight, payload, versatility and reliability. And this is the kind of thing you really, really want on a photography safari. Yeah, it is. Actually, it's funny you should say tripods are impractical in vehicles. It's, it's absolutely right. But me being me, I took a 600mm F4 to Zimbabwe years ago. And I have this abiding memory of me standing like a tank commander in the back of the open vehicle with this enormous lens on a tripod. Uh, that, that lens was the sort of thing you wouldn't want to ask me a question while using it because I might absentmindedly turn, knock you out with it. So yeah, tripods and vehicles, impractical. Yeah, and it's a good point. Not only are they impractical for the vehicle, but, you know, we might we'll be sharing this vehicle with other guests as well. And, you know, it, it it's not a popular thing to do. So I think we all have to have a bit of a responsibility to to be sort of courteous to each other um, as, as well as the sort of weight implications in our own luggage and things like that. Yeah, definitely. In our last episode, we answered some of the questions sent in by Natalie, and we have a couple more to continue with. Indeed, yes. Uh, one of Natalie's questions was about more information on specific animals. She says, I suspect that some people are interested in photographing one particular animal and would like to know when and where would be the best place to arrange a trip and conversely when not to. 
Okay, to tackle this, I'm going to pick a couple of African animals that are totally different. Both mammals, but one predator and one prey. The first is the wildebeest, permanent member of the ugly five, body parts assembled by a committee of blind drunkards. The other is my favourite animal in the world, the leopard, which is why I called my film production company Wild Leopard Films, in case you're interested. Sleek, powerful, beautiful. I think Alan's more of a cheetah man, though. Yeah, that's right. I absolutely love seeing and photographing cheetahs. Aesthetically, I think it is such a beautiful animal, but it also has so many evolutionary characteristics on display. It's so sleek for speed, its rudder-like tail, those black facial markings running down their face designed to reduce reflections at the eye for this diurnal hunter. Completely the opposite of lions. We talked about our experiences photographing Kasaru, the female cheetah, in episode 3, and I have so many fond memories of these moments. It's just a beautiful big cat to photograph, and it's, it's the supermodel of the Maasai Mara. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I do absolutely love cheetahs, but leopards, for me, they just take the biscuit for me. So, you know, the reason I picked leopards and wildebeest is that they're different in so many ways, not just physical differences, but their behaviour and how to find them. So wildebeest have many names. There are two species, one called the black wildebeest, which we're not concerned with here. The other, called common or blue wildebeest, or white-bearded gnu, or brindled gnu. Lots of names. Gnu, probably because of the sound they make. Uh, they're dark-coloured antelopes, and they're generally sort of brownish-grey, with long sections of dark body hair hanging down, and a light-coloured throat mane, which actually looks really good if you catch it with backlight. Anyway, I don't know if throat mane is an actual thing, but there we are. They move in huge herds, safety in numbers, I guess, migrating around the Maasai Mara and Serengeti ecosystems, following the fresh grasses after the rains. And one and a half million of them, along with 200,000 zebras. We usually time our Kenya safaris to coincide with them being there at the same time. There are local herds of wildebeest in the Maasai Mara that don't migrate, but seeing hundreds of thousands of them on the plains together and watching them try to run the gauntlet of the croc-infested waters of the Mara River is pretty incredible. From a where-to-find-them point of view, well, you basically can't miss them. In total contrast, leopards in the Mara are generally solitary, shy, and you know almost hidden from view most of the time in rocky or forest areas. There are other parts of Africa, like South Africa, where you're more likely to see leopards, but there are certainly plenty of them in Kenya's Maasai Mara. You just have to be more patient. Yes, areas such as the Timbavati and Sabi Sounds in South Africa have been very productive for me with uh, leopard photography. I think in one week in Sabi Sands, we saw seven different individual leopards repeatedly throughout the week. And we actually saw five individual leopards in just one day. Incidentally, we do have a question to the podcast, which just came in a couple of days ago about the differences between the areas of Africa that we visit. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in our next episode, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, this is all another reason I need to get to South Africa too. I mean, leopards used to be my bogey animal in that I'd been to Botswana, Zimbabwe, Uganda, and, and loads of times to Kenya. I'd never seen one. And then one year, they just all turned up on this big bus in Kenya. And we saw five different individuals on that trip, including a cub, which was amazing. Beautiful, beautiful thing. 
So leopards are muscular feline predators, spotted of course on a pale yellowish coat and with either green or blue eyes, beautiful eyes. They're not as big as a lion, but they have incredible strength and they can haul, you've probably seen this, they can haul massive prey up trees. By the way, leopards are often associated with trees because they need to get their food away from other predators that would steal it. Hyenas and lions come to mind. Uh, we've seen this before where a leopard will be up a tree and a hyena will just be sniffing around underneath. Obviously hyenas can't climb trees, luckily. Leopards are ambush predators and they use their stealth to get very close to their prey before launching an attack. Yeah, there's nothing like the sound of a snorting, coughing impala's alarm call to suggest that there's a, a nearby leopard. Ah, oh, yeah, and that's a great way of finding them, actually. If you can't find the predator, find the prey complaining about it. Absolutely. Um, it reminds me of the time we saw some wildebeest bolting in the Lemmer Conservancy. It had a predator presence written all over it. So off we went, and sure enough, we found a cheetah which had caught a juvenile wildebeest. Was that when I was just uh, recording the, the audio of grasses? I, th I think it was, yeah. The less said, the less said about that, the better, I think. <laughs> Little yeah. did I know. Yeah. So, But then there was also the time where we heard the uh, distant jackal's alarm call, and we sort of stopped, and we sort of thought, hmm, yeah, well, why is that jackal alarm calling? And then we saw two hyenas going in the same direction, roughly towards the sound, but they were coming from two very different areas and it allowed us to take a sort of cross-bearing and then follow that to where they were heading and then lo and behold, you know, we saw that beautiful female leopard. Yeah, we'd, we'd gone without seeing a leopard all that trip until the last day. What a treat. Saved the best to last. She was absolutely stunning. I'll put a photo of her on the podcast section of the website for this episode. Natalie also asked about information on the Maasai guides, their expertise, their bushcraft, tracking abilities, and how they understand the ecosystems. As photography guides, we work hand in glove with our fantastic Maasai friends. Their wildlife knowledge is incredibly thorough and extensive because they train to a very high level at the Koyaki Guiding School, which covers everything to do with animals, birds, insects, plants, ecosystems and so on. They've also got years of experience and great tourism knowledge as well as very good interpersonal skills. They all speak English by the way, often amongst several other languages. I think they actually speak English better than I do. Well definitely better than I do at the minute. Some of the guides we've worked with in Kenya are Moses, Boston, James and Joseph and they're all wonderful lovely people who absolutely love to help you get the best out of your safari. That really really comes across very strong. We've picked up a lot of information secondhand from these guys, but the breadth of their knowledge really is breathtaking. Through a combination of knowledge, experience and intuition, they often see things we don't. A classic case of this was when Boston pointed out miles away, he said, there's a lion over there that's just caught a warthog. And we were like, really? Even through binoculars, we couldn't see it. But sure enough, as we drove closer, there indeed was a lioness dragging a warthog she'd just caught. Their very detailed wildlife knowledge combined with our photographic approach means together we're a very effective team at getting into great positions for some spectacular wildlife photography moments. So, Alan, you mentioned South African Botswana. Did I say how much I'm not in the slightest bit jealous? Haha, <laughs> yes. So, um, just over a week away, I'm off to lead a trip for groups of photographers for Penda Photo Tours 
in South Africa's Timbavati Reserve, which is part of the Greater Kruger in the northeast area of South Africa, and then onwards to Botswana to visit the Tuli Block uh, with another group. Two very, very different areas in terms of terrain, habitat and geography, and also very different to the sort of savannah of the Maasai Mara as well. Yeah, yeah, they are. I'm intrigued about that. What's in the camera bag then? Mainly um, lots of beer and biltong. Uh, <laughs> no, apart from that, uh, I will be using two Fujifilm X-H2S cameras. One will have a 100-400mm lens attached and one will have the 150-600mm to lens attached. And the latter will mostly be used for birds and anything I need an extra bit of distance for. And the 100-400 will be used when perhaps the light is a little bit lower. Um, I'll also probably take my 50 to 140 f2.8 and probably a sort of 80 to 55 wide angle mid range zoom as well. Plus, of course, my Allen 2 monopod and <laughs> dock stabilizer and the usual sort of dust covers, chargers, memory cards, batteries, etc., etc., which we discussed in lots of detail um, in the previous episode, episode number three. Allen 2.0. That really doesn't bear thinking about. <laughs> yeah, and that's a good point well made. I think that's probably about it for episode four now. So thank you for joining us. Please feel free to get in touch if you have any questions. In episode five, coming soon, when I come back from Botswana and South Africa, have I mentioned that? Oh, f- <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'll be talking about giving names to individual animals. Is it an anthropomorphic step too far? Or is it good conservation strategy? It's it's quite an interesting subject, actually. Well, is that like calling a tripod, Alan? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Plus, of course, is a memorable photographic moment, a book review. And for the book review, we're going to step a little bit away from the field guides genre. Um, Plus a question to the podcast about the different areas of Africa that we visit for photography. And I'll also report from South Africa and Botswana. So until then... Where's that, Alan? Yeah, um, that's when I'm going in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. So until then, that's all from us. Thank you very much. Ta-ta.